So it's all right, I'm going to explain the story a little bit so we won't, not all of us will be lost. The central character, Jean Valjean, he's played by Hugh Jackman in the latest film, he's just there, the guy with the kind of shaved head. Uh, Jean Valjean is put in prison for 19 years having stolen a loaf of bread for his starving family. It's said in the time of the French Revolution, so things are not great. And Jean Valjean is incarcerated for stealing this loaf of bread for his starving family, thrown into prison for 19 years. And during his time in captivity, he becomes a very bitter and angry and resentful man. Eventually, of course, he is released and he returns home to his loved ones, only to be rejected by them because of his terrible behavior. But one day, he meets a kind bishop, this other character in the photo, who takes him in and gives him a meal. Now, this bishop, he's a fairly humble man. He has few possessions. But what he does have is some items of valuable silver. They are his inheritance. And when the bishop goes to sleep that night, he gives Valjean space to sleep. Valjean gives in to his greed. He creeps downstairs, having seen this silver earlier. He steals it. And he dashes off into the night. It isn't long before the police catch up with him, drag him back to the bishop for justice. And when the bishop sees Valjean in handcuffs being dragged towards him, he runs to him and he says, Valjean, Valjean, I see you have the silver that I gave you, but why did you not also take the candlesticks? They're of far greater worth. And Valjean is just speechless. He's overwhelmed by this incredible grace that the bishop has shown him. That the bishop decides in his love for Valjean to redeem him. To buy him back from what would have been the rest of his life spent in prison for stealing that silver. And yet the bishop buys him back from that incarceration. And at the same time, he must give up at his own cost, his most valuable possessions to do so, this silver and those candlesticks. The bishop redeems Valjean from what he deserves. And as Valjean is released as a free man, he uses his newfound freedom that he has received from this redemption in order to honor the one who had saved him at such a great cost. It's a very powerful story. And it's one I hope we can relate to as Christians here this morning. See, as we look into these verses in Titus this morning, we are going to be reminded of the far greater redemption that God has bestowed upon us who trust in Christ. We're going to see what the implications are for our lives in the light of that. So come back with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. As we come under our main heading, Living as God's Redeemed, Of our first point, we are saved by Christ our Redeemer. Saved by Christ our Redeemer. I'm just going to read the first part uh, of verse 11 to start with. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, grace simply means giving someone something that they do not deserve. God tells us in his word that he has shown us grace that brings salvation. It is a saving grace. It is a rescue that we do not deserve. 
and that this grace has appeared to all people. Paul means there is all kinds of people, men, women, children, from all nations. And we're told specifically what this grace involved just a little bit further down in verse 14. You just start reading again at the beginning of verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. God has worked by his grace through the redemption he has achieved in his son, Jesus. Like the bishop who redeemed Valjean at the cost of his most valuable possessions, that silver and those candlesticks, well, we're told God in the person of his son gave his own life to redeem all who would trust in him. But that begs the question, what do we need redeeming from? Why did Jesus have to give his life to redeem us? Well, we're told here, aren't we, that one word in chapter 2, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness. Back at my uh, university uh, we had a lot of nice open space. Sorry, let me just sort this out. Uh, we had a, a, a lot of nice open space, big green parks. Uh, there were lovely places we could go and unwind when the uh, deadlines were looming and we were stressing out with all the essays and the exams. Now, for some reason, our university, uh, they were constantly repainting the benches in these parks. So whenever I went for a stroll around one of the parks at the university, I'd just be strolling down the road, and on the right-hand side, I would always see at least one wet bench. Uh, still got wet paint. And there'd be this massive sign on it saying, do not touch wet paint. And whenever I saw that sign... I I think probably most of us can relate to this, I hope so. Whenever I saw that sign, I had this deep urge within my heart. I'd love to touch that bench. You know, I, I hadn't even thought about touching that bench before, but now that I've seen a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, I really want to touch it. I don't think I'm alone in that. We see a sign that says we're not supposed to do something and we have to resist an urge deep down in us that says, oh, don't you want to do it? We're instinctively tempted to go against good authorities quite often. And I think just those moments, they are just tiny expressions of a far greater problem that we suffer from deep down in our hearts. Commonly, we as a human race instinctively have to fight the urge to reject good authority. We have to fight the urge to reject good authority. And that stems from our decision to reject the ultimate good authority, God himself. Like Adam and Eve, our first parents, we instinctively reject God as our master. We follow their decision to resist his rule, over our lives, and our world calls that freedom, for us to seek to rule ourselves and decide for ourselves how we are to live. But God gives us a very different picture in his word of what reality, apart from him and his lordship, actually looks like for us. Let me just bring some verses up on the screen from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let me just read them. We read, 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." The reality of our rebellion, our sin, is quite different from what the world would choose to believe. We will always have a master. We were just made that way. And in sin, we're told in these verses, we are dead. We are dead to God. And instead, we follow, we submit to the course of this world, influenced by, well, the one who is called the prince of the power of the air. We know that to be the devil, Satan the one who led Adam and Eve into temptation in the first place. We live for, we submit to our passions and desires that lead us astray, whatever they might be. That's our condition apart from Christ. See, Jesus himself in his ministry, he warned those he spoke to of the nature of sin, that he who sins is a slave to sin. Our hearts are in bondage to rebellion against God. We we love sin so much that we don't have the capacity to turn from it and to love God instead. And nothing that we can do in and of ourselves can change that. The nature of our hearts now are that we are hardwired for sin. And that's really bad news, friends, for all of us. Because the penalty for sin is death and condemnation. Uh, We're separated from the God we were made to know and have unhindered relationship with in his rest. Now, friends, I know it's been pretty bleak so far, but we have to understand how hopeless our situation is in sin. That's why God's given us verses like this. If we're going to appreciate just how amazing our redemption is in Jesus. Because as we read, Jesus came to redeem us from all lawlessness, to buy us back from sin that would otherwise lead to death. Objects of wrath facing God's condemnation. Instead, he died so that we might belong to him and have life in his name. How does Jesus deal with our sin? We'll come back to Titus 2.14 again, where we're briefly given the answer. Gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. To purify for himself a people. The word purify there literally means cleanse, to wash clean. And that's what Jesus has done in his death for us. It's dealt with the guilt that we carry for breaking God's law, for resisting his rule over our lives. As Jesus, the only one who did honor God in all that he did, and yet went to the cross as our substitute. He took the full punishment for all the ways in which we deserve to be condemned for our lawlessness, for our rejection of God's rule, so that we might be declared pure, clean, on the basis of his death in our place. And that means sin has been broken for those who trust in Christ. That the ultimate power that sin has is to condemn us before God. It's Satan's ultimate weapon to say, hey, look at him. Look at how filthy his heart is in sin, God. And God in his justice, if that sin hasn't been dealt with, must, in his holiness and his righteousness, deal with it in me. 
if it hasn't been dealt with elsewhere. But now that God has dealt with our sin, if we're trusting in Christ, death has lost its sting because our sins are no longer held against us. We no longer have to fear God for the ways we've broken his law. And in place of our hearts, which were spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, now through Christ we've been given new hearts. As those made holy in him, we're now able to receive his spirit who works within us and enables us to turn from our sins that we've been freed on so that we might live for him. Because although Christ has died to redeem us, we know we still struggle to live for him, don't we? We've been released from the power of sin. We're no longer in bondage to do its will. We've been released from the penalty of sin. We no longer have to fear God's condemnation, but we still live in the presence of sin. And we have to resolve to honor Jesus rather than follow the sin of the world out there and rather than follow the sinful desires of our own hearts. Friends, Jesus did not redeem us to give us a license to sin. Jesus did not redeem us to give us a license to sin. He died for us so that we might be redeemed as his own possession, eager to do good works. Now, this was a real issue for the church in Titus. Just take out your Bibles again. Look further back at chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. This is what Paul had to say of this church at the time. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Many in Crete, in the church that Titus was ministering to, had used Jesus' rescue just as an excuse to continue behaving badly. They thought, well, you you know, Jesus has died to wash me clean. God can't punish me anymore for any of my sin. So I can just dirty myself up as much as I want. It doesn't matter. Jesus has covered it all. James Bond, he has a license to kill. Well, I have a license to sin. But that totally undermines the point of the redemption Jesus has won for us. See, if we have no concern to love and obey Jesus with our lives, that's actually a sign that we're not redeemed. Because our master clearly isn't Jesus. His blood hasn't brought us back from the authority of sin. We're still over there. If we really trust in his death, then by his spirit, we will desire to love and follow and obey him. We're never going to do that perfectly in this life. We're always going to be growing in our awareness of sin in our hearts. But if we trust Jesus, we will have a desire to honor him as our master. He died to purchase us to himself so that we might be forgiven and have him as our Lord now. We mustn't use our redemption as an excuse to continue in sin. Instead, we are to be transformed more and more as his safe people. And that's something God actually does by his grace. Have a look in verse 12. We come to our second heaven, transformed for Christ our Redeemer. Already read about God's grace in verse 11. See what it does. Verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, God's grace to us in Jesus, it doesn't just buy us back to him. 
It trains us to live the way he wants us to as our Lord. Now, all of us are at different stages in our Christian growth, and our right standing before God from start to finish will always depend on what Christ has done at the cross. But our growth as his redeemed people, that's an ongoing process. It's a bit like when you buy an old house. Old house coming up here, you you sign the papers, you move in. The house is yours. You've got the deed in your hand. It belongs to you. But slowly, little by little, you are going to make it your house. So you might arrange the first room just the way you like it, put up some nice curtains or something. The next month, you might paint the bedroom. And the month after that, you might buy a huge plasma TV, if you're anything like me, and mount it on the living room wall because you love films. You buy furniture, a reading chair, some soft lighting. Little by little, your style, your personality, your desires are being reflected in your surroundings because this is your house. Well, it's like that with the Christian life. We belong to God now because he has redeemed us, brought us back from sin in Jesus. He's brought us to faith in him. He owns us just like we own that house. And yet little by little, bit by bit, God is working to change us, opens up areas in our lives, rooms we never knew existed, digs out our habits, our practices, which we we had never even thought about before. And slowly but surely, he transforms us more and more into into what he wants us to be, more and more into the likeness of Christ himself. And that's a work of God. That is a work of his saving grace. And so in verse 12 again, we read, Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is living our life for ourselves or for others without God in the picture, without recognizing him. And grace rejects that kind of behavior. Worldly passions, well, they're desires that are set on things of this world, not the things that God wants for us. We still desire them because very often we want to be like society around us. But grace also reminds us we are not like everybody else around us. We're redeemed. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We now belong to Jesus. So grace teaches us to say no to worldly passions that belong to that old way of sin. And yet, grace doesn't just teach us negatively say no, 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 no. It promotes us in Christ-honoring behavior as well. See what verse 12 goes on to say? training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To be self-controlled, not living a life of excess in one area or another. To be level-headed, where our desires are controlled and channeled in a way God wants us to be. Our lives are to be upright, just. We're to be decent in the way in which we treat God and others. We're to keep our promises to tell the truth, whether it's painful or not at the time. The grace of God trains us to live this way. Trains us in godliness. So where God's desires, God's will for us, as he lays it on our heart, conflict with what we would rather do, we'll be mindful of who we are in Christ and honor him. Paul doesn't actually tell us how God does this by his grace. doesn't spell that out specifically. just states it as a fact. I'm just going to mention three things briefly that I think God does use by his grace to change us, though. The first, we've already mentioned briefly, is his spirit that God has caused to live in us. He is the gift that we read of in Ephesians who guarantees our greater redemption to come. He leads us personally to godliness, enables us to live 
for God from the heart. As we follow his leading, as we obey him, he causes us to produce God for the fruit of godly living. But the Spirit, he doesn't work independently. He uses a vital tool to transform us. It's a vital instrument that we're actually holding in our hands right now. God's Word. And let's never pit the Spirit and what we think the Spirit is saying to us against what God's Word says to us. As if the Spirit can say one thing and God's Word will say the opposite. God speaks to us by His Spirit through His Word. They won't disagree ever if we've understood it rightly. It's the Spirit's desire that we're renewed by this Word. We're able to live it out in all that we do. That's why we take it so seriously here at Smack. There's a reason why we gather around God's word as God's people each Sunday. Because we know this is the word he's going to use by his spirit to change us and to grow us as his church. So that's the second thing. God uses his word by his spirit to grow us up. The third thing that I think God uses by his grace is each other. The other people that he brings into our lives. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Jesus redeemed us to be, you see what we read there? In verse 14, to purify for himself a people, not just individual persons, but a people for his own possession. God has given us to one another as a church to help one another grow in our love and likeness of him. So we do that when we meet together when we teach and admonish one another as we share this truth in love and bring it to bear on one another's lives, as we're willing to have those conversations. Hey, how is your life with Christ going? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? A little bit later, we're going to be looking at growth groups. We're going to be looking at what we're launching today. Five new groups that are going to be meeting around the city, opportunities for us to be gathering together as smaller groups and encouraging one another as we share God's truth and love once a week. Please make the most of that opportunity to fulfill our duty to one another, to be encouraging one another as Christians. Bear that option in mind. Now, we mustn't focus all our attention on the external means that God uses to grow us. You know, his spirit, his word, other Christians, it's all coming to us from outside. There was a famous slogan uh, that was very popular uh, a few years ago. I don't know how how popular it became here, but I know in the Western world there was this idea saying, hey, you just have to let go and let God. Let go and let God. The belief was just if you just let yourself go, God will change you automatically. You don't need to put any effort in yourself. It's like getting sunburn on a sunny day. You just have to let go under the sun and you will get burnt. You don't have to put in any effort yourself. Spiritual growth is an easy ride. Sit back, relax. God will change me. It's not what Paul means here. The word he uses is train. God's grace trains us for godliness. We still have to run the race faithfully. We must resolve to say no to uh, to worldly passions and yes to God in Christ instead. See, when you're at work and your boss isn't supervising you, or my boss isn't supervising me for that matter, we're not going to automatically behave in a godly way. But now that I know I've been redeemed and that Jesus is Lord and that he is the one that I'm to honor above all, I'm to desire him, whether my boss is looking over my shoulder or not, I'm to do an honorable job because I am one of God's redeemed. 
Now, we may be tempted, of course, to think, hey, you know, I've worked really hard all morning. Uh, my boss is unfair anyway. If I take the rest of the afternoon off, you'll never know. And again, we're faced with one of the everyday decisions, hundreds of decisions every day. Am I going to honor Jesus in this situation as my master, or am I going to go the other way that I know I shouldn't? Am I going to recognize that I'm redeemed in him, or am I going to live for the old way of sin that he has rescued me from? But it's up to us in all of those decisions each day, which way will I go? We've got a great motivation to be doing just that. We've got that in our final verse we're looking at in verse 13. We're motivated in light of Christ our Redeemer to come. Look in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, as Christians, we don't just look back to God's love for us at the cross in Christ by which he's redeemed us to motivate us to say, yes, Jesus is my master now. I'm living for him and I'm delighting in him. We don't just look back. We look forward, as well as Christians, to our blessed hope. Jesus' return. When was the last time you thought about the fact that Jesus is coming back to redeem you in whole? Uh, when, when we use the word hope today, we're usually talking about something we're quite uncertain about, don't we? It's my birthday next month. I'm not saying that for any particular reason, just to illustrate a point. It's my birthday next month. And as my birthday approaches, you know, there might be things I hope for. I hope Melissa has picked up on the subtle hints I've been laying down about that new TV down at Harvey Norman. I hope I won't eat too much as we've just had Chinese New Year. Yeah, it's a very desperate hope for me, but there we go. I hope, I hope, I hope. I hope it's going to happen, but I really, really am not sure. That's how we use the word hope today in everyday life. It's not how Paul is using the word here when he says, as we look forward to our blessed hope. No, he's using those words to describe something which is absolutely certain. It's guaranteed for us who are now redeemed in Christ. His glorious appearing. And friends, that is a great motivation for us to remain faithful to him as our true master in the present. Melissa and I, we spent the day at Frim a while back, the forestry reserve, not more than an hour from KL. We were climbing what felt like a never-ending hill in the midday heat, and we, we got to a certain point up this, up this hill, and we just turned and looked, at one another, looked to one another, and we saw despair in our eyes, and we, just, we didn't even say anything. We just knew we wanted to say, it's enough. Let's turn back. I'm so tired. But I'm glad I just paused for a moment and I looked down on the path and there was a sign just there. It said 15 meters to the summit, a sign on the ground. Now, I couldn't see the summit for all the jungle that was in the way, for all the mosquitoes that were bothering me and everything else. But that sign, that encouragement, it just kept me going. So we looked forward to getting to the top. And when we got there, it was amazing that hard climb, it was well worth the struggle for the beautiful view that we could enjoy at the top of that hill. You know, living a godly life now, I don't have to tell you, often feels like a hard climb because this world, as we've seen, is going the other way. It's living for anything but God, 
hostile to him. Oh, so when we take his truth, his gospel to our friends and our family, we may well be ridiculed or worse. When we simply seek to live a godly life, as we're encouraged to hear, that goes against the norms of society because we now belong to Jesus, as we do that, we may well be ridiculed or worse. And that's hard. It's not easy. But as Christians, we have this wonderful promise to keep us going. As we remain faithful to Jesus now, we look forward to the day when the trial will be over, when suffering will be consumed by glory, as Jesus appears and he comes to redeem us in every way. Not just from the power of sin over our lives, not just from the penalty we fear for sin, but from the presence of sin itself. When he takes us home to be with him forever, in a new earth and a new heaven, where sin and suffering and pain and death are no more. They're history. And we will know the perfect rest of enjoying his presence for all eternity in his perfect provision. So friends, keep that promise in mind each day. Keep on looking forward and living for that crucial day. Because that is the day when our sufferings now will not compare to the glory we're going to enjoy when God does make everything new. And that's guaranteed for us in Christ. Let's sum up what we've covered as we close. God's grace, what has it done? Well, for us in Jesus, it means we've been redeemed. We've been brought back from the power and penalty of sin as we trust in Jesus as our Lord. It means we are now being trained to live out that redemption, resisting our old way of sin, living for our old master by living for our new master in Christ instead. And it's that same grace to us in Christ that motivates us to keep on living for the future hope that we have in him when he will redeem us in every way. So brothers and sisters... As God's redeemed, here this morning, keep on going. Live in a manner worthy of the great sacrifice God has made to purchase us to one another, his one and only son. And when we fail, repent. Trust again in that perfect redemption Christ has achieved for us at the cross and resolve again to live for him who gave his life for us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that our right standing before you, our ability to delight in you now, our hope for the future, all of those things rest not on us, but in Christ and the redemption that he has won for us in his own body as he died in our place. Please help us to continue trusting in your grace, to be growing in our likeness of Christ, and to be looking forward to that day when we know as your people, trusting in him, we can look forward to being redeemed in every way, and we will have nothing but eternity to look forward to with you. So keep us in these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.